Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, an elderly mobster looks back on his life with a mixture of pride and regret in Martin Scorsese's late career masterpiece. I was one of a thousand working stiffs. I thought I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. On her wedding night, a blushing bride plays a game of hide-and-seek with deadly results. I'm really sorry about all this. It's true what they say, the rich really are different. I'll give you a ten-second head start. And ten Cornish fishermen make an unlikely hit record. Watching you sing was one of those rare moments in the music business when you realise you are witnessing something truly original. The bottom line is, you've got a unique sound. And we believe we can help you get it released by a major label. (laughs) The war of words between 77-year-old Italian-American director Martin Scorsese and fans of superhero movies like Spider-Man and The Avengers that has sucked up so much online and real-life oxygen this year can finally be laid to rest. By bringing his epic mobster drama The Irishman out at the end of the year, Mr Scorsese gives himself the final word. In case you missed all the hoo-ha, in an interview Scorsese essentially said that comic book films were more like theme park rides than cinema. And when the fanboys and girls of the internet rose up in defensive disgust, he doubled down with an op-ed in the New York Times. Scorsese is understandably worried that grown-up dramas are finding it harder and harder to get made, and even harder to find screen space, and therefore harder and harder to see on the big screen, which is where cinema belongs. The great man knows from personal experience that this is true. We'll talk about the actual film, The Irishman, in a little bit. But first, some background. Scorsese has been finding it difficult to get financing in recent years. His last feature film, Silence, about Catholic priests evangelising in Edo-era Japan and suffering great physical and spiritual hardship, ended up being paid for and being seen mostly via the Amazon Prime service. His playful recent documentary about Bob Dylan, The Rolling Thunder Review, was a Netflix exclusive, and The Irishman, after many years in development, would only get made if Netflix paid for the expensive digital effects that it needed. $130 million later, and The Irishman is being seen in a few cinemas, a contractual clause that Scorsese would have insisted upon, but also the only way the film can be eligible for next year's Oscars. 
Like a loan shark, Netflix have Scorsese's marker, and they insist that his film is a prestige tentpole for their streaming service, not for a mass theatrical audience. Meanwhile, Scorsese and us all can see comic books, superhero movies, and other Disney franchise faff dominating almost every screen at the local multiplex. This year so far, five of the top seven at the U.S. box office are Disney pictures, and the other two are superhero films from other studios. I've warned in the past on this program that cinema for discerning adult audiences might end up restricted to festivals and home viewing, and it seems to be happening even faster than I feared. Unlike Scorsese, I still quite enjoy a decent blockbuster, but thanks to the aggressive tactics, predatory power, and formula filmmaking of the big studios, the balance is all wrong now. Hey, my friend, how are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm gonna put him on the phone, and let you talk to him, okay? Hello. Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you too. Even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir. I, I do, I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107 since 1947. Yeah, you know,、uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. Check out the way that Al Pacino pronounces the word "phone" in that clip. Can we hear that again, just that bit? Well, glad to meet you too, even if it's over the phone. It's amazing, isn't it? Like a little sing-song. The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's latest and twenty-fifth fiction feature film, is full of these remarkable grace note moments, where either Pacino, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, or Scorsese himself, or his longtime editor Thelma Schoonmaker, or any number of others, relax a little bit in full command of their machine, playful but serious. Totally on top of their game, and you might argue doing a little bit of showboating on their victory lap, because make no mistake, this is a victory lap. Possibly the last chance that Scorsese and De Niro will ever have to work together on something significant. As I mentioned earlier, Scorsese is seventy-seven. De Niro and Joe Pesci, coaxed out of retirement for this project, are seventy-six. Pacino is seventy-nine. Mind you, Clint Eastwood's latest film has just come out, and he's 89. So I guess you never know what's going to happen next. De Niro has wanted to make this film an epic true story of mob life spanning several decades for donkey's years. But by the time they got it all together,、uh, they realised that the actors were too old to play younger versions of themselves. Thanks to expensive digital Botox, all the leads were able to play all the scenes, and movie magic, you know, mostly makes them look like they are in their forties and fifties. De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, a World War Two veteran, a truck driver, and union organizer, and mob enforcer and hitman. When we meet him, he's sitting in a wheelchair, alone in a retirement home, looking for someone to talk to, and that's us. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do.
We flash back to the 1950s, and Frank is having truck trouble on a delivery run, and he's helped out by a little guy who knows a thing or two about engines. Frank doesn't know this yet, but the little dude is Russell Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci, a made guy in the Pennsylvania Mafia, and a man with a lot of, shall we say, diverse business interests. Helped out of a sticky legal situation by a shady lawyer, who's also Russell's cousin, Bill Buffalino, played by Ray Romano, Sharon ends up on mob radar, eventually working direct for Russell in whatever nefarious schemes required the kind of remorse-free death-dealing that Sharon specialised in. Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch, there's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so. It's interesting, isn't it, that in Scorsese films, De Niro hardly ever gets to play an actual Italian. Jimmy Conway in Goodfellas, Sam Rothstein in Casino, Rupert Pupkin in The King of Comedy, Jimmy Doyle in New York, New York, Need I Go On? It's almost as if Scorsese doesn't think De Niro is Italian enough to play an Italian in his pictures. Anyway, I digress. Russell Buffalino introduces Sheeran to the notorious union boss Jimmy Hoffa, Al Pacino. Hoffer is one of the most powerful men in America. His Teamsters Union had over a million members, and the union pension money was the most desirable investment fund in the country, especially if you were a career criminal and there was no other way to get hold of that sort of money. Teamsters dollars and mafia muscle built Las Vegas, but by this point of the story there are Kennedys in government, and Bobby, as Attorney General, is determined to root out corruption in the union movement. Hoffer needs protection, and Sheeran is his man, eventually being rewarded with the presidency of his own branch. They call them locals, I think, in America. But Hoffer has trouble from within, too. Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, played by English actor Stephen Graham, who has protection from the Genovese family, is playing up good and proper. Don't forget, Hoffer was corrupt, but he wasn't mafia. He wasn't protected. He just thought he was untouchable. Can you believe this weather, Frank? Huh? It's 85 degrees outside. Perfect. Hey, Tony Jack. Jimmy. People freezing to death in New York. And look at us. Hey. Why we don't live here all year round is what I want to know. Beautiful. It's summer. What? It's summer. People aren't freezing to death in New York. It's summer. In my mind, it's always eight degrees in New York. I'm making a point. Making a point? Making a point dressing like that? Is how you dress for me? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For me? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I dress in a suit. For me. And you're late. What? Thrown out of his union after going to jail for witness tampering, Hoffer becomes even more of a thorn in the side of the mob, an ego unrestrained by anyone else's influence. Taciturn and loyal, Sheeran attempts to act as a go-between, communicating mob unhappiness and Hoffer frustration backwards and forwards until something has to give. Sheeran and Hoffer were great friends. Their families socialised together, and in the film, Hoffer is much more popular with Sheeran's daughter Peggy, played by Anna Paquin, than Sheeran himself. She has more than an inkling of how her dad brings home the bacon, but somehow doesn't think of her Uncle Jimmy as being that sort of guy. I guess he didn't have to be when he had Sheeran to pull the trigger for him. 
It's this devotion that makes what happens next so painful for Sharon and for us, the audience. Like so many of Scorsese's gangster pictures, he gets under the skin of these characters who do such awful things to other awful people for the most part, revealing the deep human contradictions and the impossible toll taken by a life of violence. You're late. And it was traffic. Yeah, it's traffic. <laughs> Wasn't it traffic? Yeah, give me traffic. traffic. What do you what, what do you want from us? It was bumper to bumper. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's bad, you know. Traffic. I never waited for anyone who was late more than ten minutes in my life. I'd say fifteen. Fifteen's right. No, ten. I don't think so. Ten's not enough. You have to take traffic into account. If that's that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's 10. I still say 15. No, 10. Fine, we, we disagree on that. Well, How oh. about 12 and a half minutes? There we go. There 12 you and a half. In the middle, right it's in the middle. Compromise. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, more than 10 is saying something. Are you saying something to me? No, I'm here. Hmm. It says what it says. I keep calling The Irishman a gangster film, but that's really just the milieu that we're in. It's so much more than just that. In many ways, it is an old man's meditation on growing old, the diminution of your powers, the reduction in your relevance. The tragedy of the Irishman is that Sheeran never quite comes to that realisation. He doesn't rat to the cops, even though all his co-conspirators are long dead. He is determined to be laid to rest in a mausoleum rather than cremated or buried because he thinks that'll keep his body around for longer, stave off his inevitable erasure from planet Earth. The film is also an old man's version of those virtuoso Scorsese, Pesci, De Niro films of the 90s, Goodfellas and Casino. It has the same stylistic elements, the flashbacks, the voiceover, the montages. It even knowingly recycles some of the music and set pieces from those films. But everything happens at a much gentler pace, a more considered pace. You might argue that the film is worried about breaking a hip, but I think it's also demonstrating how artists with that amount of collective experience and security in their achievements can relax and inhabit their roles more fully than we have seen in years, maybe ever. Pesci, in particular, is a revelation. None of the annoying tics and habits that made him famous, just a quiet earnestness and intensity that still dominates every scene he's in. De Niro is fantastic too. When you consider Joker, what a year he's had. De Niro plays an inarticulate outsider, a pleaser. It's one of those rare low-status characters for him, and he's marvellous. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. The Irishman is rated R13 for violence, cruelty and offensive language, so much so that I'm amazed we found any clips that weren't full of enthusiastic and vivid cursing. Its theatrical run might be coming to an end, but it is streaming exclusively on Netflix roundabout now. Tino, you don't want to kill me? You don't want me to die? No, I don't. I like you, Grace. So let me go. Okay. I'm weak. You're a good guy. 
You're a really, really, really good guy. And Alex, Alex loves you. And you love him. He's not going to forgive you if you do this. Maybe not. But at least he'll be alive. I can't let my entire family die because of you. It's insane. Can't you see it's insane? No one's gonna die. No one, no one is gonna die. And you can do something about it. It's bullshit. No. I am not who you think I am. Alex is the one who got out. If anyone was gonna save you, it would have been him. The original title for The Irishman was the title of the book it is based on, I Hear You Paint Houses. It's a much better title than The Irishman, and in fact that title doesn't appear anywhere in the film itself. It's as if Netflix wanted a dumber title for their own purposes and Scorsese had to agree, as long as, as far as he's concerned, the film is actually called I Hear You Paint Houses. It's very odd. The title comes from the central character's tendency to leave the crime scene somewhat redder than it was previously, so you could argue that the daft horror movie Ready or Not could also have used that title. It does get very, very red. Hugo Weaving's niece, Samara, plays Grace, newly married to Alex Domas, played by Mark O'Brien, an heir to a huge fortune made selling board games. The wedding and reception is at the family estate, and like many old rich families in movies, there are some traditions that have to be honoured before the new entrant can finally be welcomed into the family. Grace and the rest of the family have to play a game. But which game? A mysterious wooden box provides the answer at a midnight ceremony. Whenever the Ludomasses are presented with a new addition to the family, we place a blank playing card into the box. Our initiate then has the privilege of drawing the card, and Mr. LaBelle will tell us which game to play. I got chess. I got old maid. Seriously, what the f*** is old maid? Fitch. So I just take out the card? My dear? It is your turn. <laughs> what does it say, girl? <laughs> it says hide and seek. Are we really going to play that? So, hide and seek it is. But of all the choices available to the box, hide and seek is the most dangerous. When hide and seek is chosen, the box and the inhabitant of it demands a sacrifice. If Grace doesn't die in a satanic ritual before the sun rises, the whole family will die their own horrible deaths. The chase is on. Which of the family members will try and save Grace and which will cave in? With antique weapons like crossbows, axes and shotguns, the family, which includes Andy McDowell, Henry Cherney and Adam Brody, go to their work with enthusiasm but not much effectiveness. The first three victims are the unfortunate domestic staff who find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ready or Not is bloody and funny and silly with some decent jump scares and plot twists. The best two horror films I've seen recently, Jordan Peele's Get Out and... 
uh, checks notes, Jordan Peele's Us, have both had a heavy-duty helping of allegory to go along with the thrills and spills. I like it like that. It's always good for a film to be about more than just what it's about, if you get my drift. So what's ready or not about, then? I'd like to think that it's about how capitalism and our current level of inequality requires a human sacrifice every now and then to be sustainable. The Domas family made their pact with the devil and they'll stop at nothing to maintain their lifestyle. The little people don't mean much to them. And even if they are a bit squeamish about being so close to the process, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. I'd like to have known a bit more about Grace's backstory and how she became the badass that she presents as in the story. There was an opportunity to really go to town with the politics there. But writers Guy Busick and R. Christopher Murphy and directors Matt Bettinelli and Tyler Gillette obviously wanted to keep her a bit mysterious, but I reckon that's a cop-out. I'm really sorry about all this. It's true what they say. The rich really are different. I'll give you a ten-second head start. Ready or Not is rated R16 for violence, cruelty and offensive language. Is it me or is cruelty a relatively new addition to the censor's lexicon? I'm certainly seeing it more and more these days. The film is in wide release now. What do you think? Hey, you all right? It sounds great. Although I was picking up a little bit of interference in the last verse. Might be me pacemaker. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to be turning that off, Father. (laughs) In the bland tradition of British versions of A Star Is Born, think of James Corden as the unlikely opera star Paul Potts in One Chance back in 2013, Fisherman's Friends is the story of ten Cornish fishermen who sing sea shanties in their spare time. Discovered by a London pop music manager on a stag weekend in their tiny village, they become unlikely folk music superstars. Their story is a true one, but the film, as is so often the case, plays fast and very loose with that truth in order to create a highly predictable rags-to-riches story, which includes an unlikely romance, a real estate deal gone sour, and one band member passing away on the verge of their top ten success. Watching you sing was one of those rare moments in the music business when you realise you are witnessing something truly original. The bottom line is, you've got a unique sound. And we believe we can help you get it released by a major label. (laughs) Daniel Mays, a regular supporting actor for Mike Lee and other kitchen sink British directors, is the London music man. He's a good dramatic actor usually, but this only gives him the tiniest amount to get his teeth into. Same for his love interest, Tuppence Middleton, who plays the daughter and granddaughter of two band members. For a film set in and around the sea, Fisherman's Friends is remarkably shallow. It's a bit of a crowd pleaser, I suppose, and its capacity to please you may depend on your affection for the music, which the band obviously know and care deeply about. The film cares rather less deeply in favour of finding the broadest audience it can. Who's the lead singer of the group? Nobody. We take it in turns. Yeah, it's very democratic. So what kind of songs do you guys perform? Shanties. Traditional sea shanties, you know. Uh, um, You know this one, perhaps. um. What shall we do? 
with a drunken sailor. What shall we do? With... Fisherman's Friends is rated M for offensive language and sexual references, and it's playing in select cinemas across the country now. And that's our programme for this week. Martin Scorsese has always made excellent use of music in his films, often with the collaboration of the band's Robbie Robertson, and The Irishman is no exception. Here, Robertson is performing with Van Morrison, both of them veterans of Scorsese's documentary The Last Waltz back in 1978. This track isn't on The Irishman's soundtrack CD, but it is in the film. It's called I Hear You Paint Houses. I hear you paint houses I'm Dan Slevin and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen where you can find reviews of other interesting film and TV selections from the plethora of local online streaming services. Simon is back next time, so please join him for more At The Movies at the same time next week. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.